We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening on the telephone by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And also on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. And the reason why both my guests are on the telephone this week will be highlighted in the up-and-coming minutes. Now, tonight we'll be discussing news about a pending Taiwan-made coronavirus vaccine coming out quite shortly amid heightened concern about a rise in domestic cases, Taiwan not being invited to the WHA for the fifth consecutive year, the Legislative Constitutional Amendments Committee being set to convene for the first time next week, the DPP vowing to weed out members with criminal gang affiliation, the case AMT formally announcing the date for its chairmanship election and an alleged jetpack man or woman being filmed flying in the skies near a major intersection in Taichung, now being under investigation. But we'll begin with Thai power on Thursday, initiating rolling blackouts, which affected roughly 4 million households island-wide following a malfunction caused by four generators, and that caused the generators to trip at the Shindar power plant in Kaohsiung. Now, outages were initiated in different areas as an emergency measure after generators at the plant jumped at 2.37pm, prompting a phone alert that was sent out to cell phone owners across the island. Now, according to the Ministry of Economic Affairs, the incident was sparked by the malfunction of a communication system at a transformer station in Kaohsiung, as a result of which the Shindar power plant was unable to distribute energy. The now malfunction caused two coal-fired generators and two natural gas generators at the plant to trip, cutting power output by 1.6 million kilowatts. Now, Taipei has said that it will compensate the households affected and they will receive compensation in line with Thai Power's regulations. Now, those regulations are a bit sketchy, but the last time there was a major power outage in Taiwan in August of 2017, Thai Power deducted 34 NT from everybody's bill because it said that was basically one day's worth of electricity. Needless to say, though, government officials, including President Tsai Ing-wen, have been very busy apologising for the power outage. So, Ralph, I mean... You you weren't affected by the power outage, you told me off the show earlier. But, I mean, obviously this has happened before. It's now happened again. It doesn't say very much about the way Taiwan distributes its energy, I would have thought. I'm not sure that Taiwan differs markedly from other heavily populated developed economies in terms of power outages. I know they happen in, in the less developed parts of Asia. I can think of a couple of countries right offhand. And uh, not only does the power go out here, but the water goes out and the gas goes out and other things come and go, sometimes depending on the system, sometimes the building you're in, sometimes how how you use it. Anyway, um, it doesn't really surprise me. I don't think it's a routine recurring, you know, like every month or even every year. So I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it unless there's a systemic problem uh, at the power plant and they just can't figure it out or they can't get it fixed. I think the systemic problem here is you know, the security of the power grid. Uh, we live under a constant threat from China here in Taiwan. And I think it should concern all of us about the possibility that the grid could go down across the island so easily based on one incident in, in Kaohsiung, uh, but we had rolling power outages across the island. I, I think... Uh, our political and uh, military leadership should be very, very concerned about this. And um, well, I mean, apologising, Ross. Do you think apologising is enough? Do you think they should be actually explaining why it keeps happening? 
Uh, I thought that part you mentioned about the uh, compensation was very interesting, along with apologies, because uh, the number of manpower hours that are going to go into apologies and calculating something like a 34 Taiwan dollar compensation, frankly, that does seem uh, like a waste of time. And of course, Ralph, like I said, you didn't suffer from the power outage. I also didn't suffer from the power outage. But I mean, what about the people that did? Because of course, offices were sent home, like droves of people were just sent home from offices, especially in Taipei's Nehu area. Right. Yeah, I understand that um, it, it hit parts of Taipei pretty hard. I saw some rows of stores that had lost their power. And oddly enough, other stores on the same block still had it. I couldn't really figure out what how the... Uh, what the order was or what the system was. Um, but apparently um, the, they got the, uh, the plant going back up to normal sooner than they expected, so they didn't need to hit more people with the, with the outage. So, we, um, yeah, we, we, uh, nothing happened here. and uh, it, it does seem like businesses could, could be compensated a bit more if they depend on power to produce things or if they're losing a certain number of customers over their hour-long block of power outage, then they, sh- they should be compensated for that by, by the power company. Basically, and Ross, obviously, um, compensating individual households is one thing, but a comp- compensating companies, large companies, is a completely different matter, really, when we talked about the 34 NT. Uh, hey, man, what would be a fair amount? I mean, you're just going to give a, a, a fixed amount to every industry or every enterprise, does the, the beverage shop get the same amount as a manufacturing facility? Again, this is going to cost an enormous amount of manpower hours to calculate when, uh, frankly, as, as we've discussed, uh, people who were affected, it was somewhat on a rolling basis. And um, to Thai Power's credit, I suppose, uh, they do seem to have resolved the situation relatively quickly. Moving on now, and there was some disturbing news this week as Taiwan's much-touted, lauded, reported about and celebrated handling of the coronavirus pandemic was looking a bit shaky and still is, in fact, as the Central Epidemic Command Centre began reporting a surge in domestically transmitted cases. Now, domestically transmitted cases have been reported here in recent weeks, but they've all been linked to China Airlines and the Novotel. But this week we saw heightened concerns as the source of infections in some of the news new cases remains unknown. And while that's pretty much par for the course in most other countries, it's a bit of a much of a wake-up call for people here in Taiwan. Now, of course, there was some good news as President Tsai Ing-wen on Thursday announced that a locally developed coronavirus vaccine is expected to be available in late July. Now, according to Tsai, phase two clinical trials of vaccines are now nearing completion. And she's directed the Central Epidemic Command Centre to prepare for mass vaccinations. And she went on to encourage the public to get the Taiwan-made shot. Tsai didn't release any further details details concerning the local vaccines, but previous announcements by the Food and Drug Administration have said that at least three vaccines are currently being developed, one by Adimmune, one by United Biomedical and one by Medigen. So, Ross, we've got hopefully a domestic coronavirus vaccine coming out, but heightened concern about domestic transmissions. Uh, Hopefully the locally developed vaccine will be available and it'll be uh, proven to be effective and safe to use. Uh, but that really is not an excuse for the failure to date to procure a sufficient amount of vaccines uh, that are available in the marketplace from other sources. 
uh, many other countries have been able to do this. And really, again, I don't think there's any excuse why Taiwan has not been able to procure vaccines to the same uh, quantity that other countries have done so. And I think uh, at an appropriate time, uh, the authorities are going to have to answer for this. There's some political risk there. As far as recent days, uh, sure, it's, it's more cases than we've had in Taiwan ever since the pandemic started. But uh, my own view is there's been a bit of an overreaction. Again, politicians, they want to err on the side of caution. It's, to me, it's very similar to uh, recent year's trend to quickly call a typhoon holiday, and then it winds up being um, you know, not so bad, uh, but uh, because they've had bad experience with previous typhoons when it wasn't uh, declared a typhoon holiday. So now we're erring on the side of caution, not necessarily letting the science uh, be the determining factor. Uh, but you know, some of the things we've seen in the last few days, like signing your name and leaving your phone number on a piece of paper at, at a fast food restaurant or a supermarket, uh, these things don't really have any logic, and frankly, they look rather, rather quaint and old-fashioned in a society that's supposed to be as technologically advanced as Taiwan. That uh, establishments are using paper sign-in sheets rather than something uh, online like an app. And Ralph, I mean, obviously, erring on the side of caution, sort of Ross, there question that, but I, I, th- I think there's nothing wrong with erring on the side of caution. I think, given that. Earlier in the week, if we go back to Tuesday, the uh, Central Epidemic Command Center didn't know whether some of these little outbreak hotspots were linked. There's one water, I think this morning they said that all three of those are connected. I need to go back and look at the the details there, but that's good news for them. That means that they're actually tracing a single origin somewhere instead of suddenly the COVID pops up here, pops up there, and you don't know how it's getting around. So in that context, without you know some wider mass outbreak, it makes sense to raise alert. Um, and I think that's what stage two or level two is doing, the, the social distancing you see in the convenience stores now um, and the, the restrictions on large events, which I think happened last year as well, about a year ago. Um, those help, if nothing else, to remind people to be safe. It does keep people apart a little bit in some of these crowded spots around Taipei. The face mask rules are back. And these are fairly harmless. I think they, they do remind people to be careful. Um, somewhat symbolic. I don't know if it's really, you know, I think there has some limited use, medically speaking, um, epidemiologically speaking, but they do tell people, look, you know, there's a problem out there. You know, let's all be careful. And yet we don't have anything like a, a mass closure of businesses, which would be, at the next stage, if I understand that right. Yeah, and what about the Taiwan-made vaccine, Ralph? Um, yeah, I agree with Ross. It's just too little, too late. It's really a mystery that why a place like this doesn't have a, a nice, hefty shipment of vaccines that people actually want. Um, it's the the uh, AstraZeneca just doesn't have any mass appeal around here. Um if you're of, of the right age or in the right category, you can go and try to get it. It's a, a lot of red tape and a lot of waiting around in, in hospitals, from what I understand, just to get, even if you're on the list, to qualify. So, uh, yes, it's not so urgent here unless you want to travel to get the vaccine um, or unless we have a big outbreak locally. Still, um, I, I agree with Ross, if this wanders on and there is a bigger outbreak, then there is political risk uh, will ensue rather quickly. And, of course, Ross, going back to the vaccine, of course, Adimmune, United Biomedical and Medigen are all doing these 
developing these vaccines. But of course, there was a bit of a stink this week with Honduras because Honduras's president said that the, his country, well, it's looking for a diplomatic bridge to acquire coronavirus vaccines, and that could entail opening a, a commercial office in Beijing. Well, it's not unusual for countries that still have diplomatic uh, relations with the Republic of China and Taiwan to establish a commercial office uh, uh, just the same way the majority of countries have a non-embassy representative office in Taiwan and an embassy in, in uh, China. Uh, so that by itself is not unusual had it been done uh, at a time when there wasn't the global pandemic and the need for Honduras to procure vaccines. It really would not have been um, as sensitive. Uh, so from that perspective, it's not a big surprise. But uh, from another perspective, it's also not a surprise that Honduras is going to do what they think is necessary to uh, safeguard the health of their population. And uh, if they've determined that buying the Chinese uh, or accepting donations of the Chinese vaccine is the appropriate course, uh, you know, it's understandable that political leadership will make that decision. Uh, one interesting factor there is uh, you know, in recent months, the new Biden administration has said that they're going to do a lot uh, for the Northern Triangle countries, for, and that includes Honduras, and mostly that was related to uh, the immigration flow to the U.S. southern border. Uh, but with, with the improved situation in the United States, which apparently does include a large number of unused vaccine doses for a variety of political reasons and other reasons people in the U.S., uh, a lot of people don't want to take it. Uh, one wonders why the U.S., which at least during the Trump administration, uh, uh, spoke a lot about making sure that countries do not de-recognize Taiwan uh, isn't stepping in in a very public way and, and saying, uh, we'll send those vaccines to Honduras, no need to get uh, too close to China or jeopardize the diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. Um, I think Honduras, like a lot of other uh, developing countries, uh, depends, is more eager to get vaccines from China, even though they've not been proven as effective as uh, vaccines made by other manufacturers around the world. So they, in the Philippines and Indonesia got on board with the Chinese vaccines pretty early on. Um, and it, it saved some people. It's better than having none at all. And perhaps the Honduran government is thinking the same way. Regarding the, the U.S. relations in Central America when it comes to Taiwan, historically, I think since the 1980s, every U.S. government has, in some way, subtle or otherwise, urged the Central American countries not to break relations with Taiwan and switch to China. I don't know if Biden is going to keep up that policy. And it doesn't always work. We have Costa Rica and Panama that are already gone. So um, but it, it, um, given Biden's rather icy relations with China so far, it wouldn't surprise me if he, his government were to urge the remaining Central American allies to remain uh, allied with Taiwan. And do you see the Thai administration, Ralph, sort of when the when these made in Taiwan vaccines come out, scrambling to provide Taiwan's diplomatic allies with shots of the vaccines? Yeah, I do. And not not only the diplomatic allies, but anybody else who who wants to take them. I think it'll be quickly commercialized. Um, you know, it'd be another another possibility for the new southbound countries that uh, Thai has been trying to uh, court now since she was uh, shortly after she was elected. The diplomatic allies will be up on the list, too. And a lot of the diplomatic allies don't have an outbreak in the South Pacific, but the ones in the Americas do, so they need something. And I think you'll see that develop very much like the face mask diplomacy that we were experiencing around the world 
about a year ago. Taiwan was handing them out, China was handing them out, Vietnam was handing them out, and um, perhaps the same thing will happen with the vaccines, and uh, probably pretty good news, assuming they work. I I don't share Ralph's uh, optimism on that, simply because, as he mentioned, with the face mask uh, diplomacy, other countries were doing it. There were ridiculous situations where Taiwan was shipping them to Vietnam, and Vietnam was making face masks and shipping them to other countries or donating them to other countries. But uh, more practically, Taiwan's going to need to produce enough of this vaccine to uh, satisfy the local uh, demand here locally, local population. So right there, let's assume the majority of people in Taiwan are willing to take the vaccine. So we're looking at 18, 20 million doses that are going to be needed uh, uh, from whether from a manufacturing perspective or a political perspective, how how much appetite or availability there would be to donate to other countries. I would expect there might be some available to donate, but the amounts are going to be incredibly small. So by by the the time that Taiwan is able to actually donate the made in Taiwan vaccine in any appreciable quantities to other countries, uh, hopefully, uh, believe it or not, I'm an optimist that the global situation will be much improved or there's going to be, again, surplus doses that the United States or other large countries, maybe by then the European Union, uh, will be handing out. And then Taiwan's just going to be one among a number of countries that is sort of assisting in this effort and say, okay, well, that's that's nice, but you don't really stand out. And that's just going to be identical to what happened with the face masks last year. And moving on to another topic, but staying with health, um, because, of course, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Tuesday surprised absolutely no one when it announced that Taiwan has not been invited to participate in the 74th World Health Assembly, which will be taking place virtually from May the 24th through June the 1st. It's now the fifth straight year that Taiwan has been excluded from the Global Health Body's annual chinwag, and Foreign Ministry spokesman Joanne O told reporters that Taiwan will fight to the end to seek participation as an observer in the WHA, while the Ministry's Office of International Cooperation says the government will file a letter of protest with the World Health Organization's Secretariat on the opening day of the annual meeting. So, Ross, I take it this didn't come as a surprise to you whatsoever? Not at all, and uh, I I did publish commentary recently in, in the local media suggesting that maybe Taiwan should stop uh, you know, this fruitless effort. I quoted the famous American comedian, uh, Groucho Marx, who made, a, who made a comment about not wanting to be a member of a club that uh, you know, wanted him. Uh, in this case, Taiwan isn't wanted. Uh, so well, you know, why even bother repeatedly asking um, when you know, China has used its uh, political uh, power within the WHO and the WHA? to prevent Taiwan's invitation. So, you know, we're doing this every year, and we're saying, oh, we're going to go down to the last day um, and keep fighting for this. And the ironic thing is, you know, the Trump administration had said that they're going to withdraw from the World Health Organization. There was talk about setting up an alternative platform, you know, Global Health Coalition of Democracies. And most likely Taiwan would have been a participant, and Taiwan would have been saying that's great. So then Biden comes into office, says the U.S. is going back into the WHO. Now we have Taiwan saying we want very much to be in the WHO, and we want to attend the WHA. Uh, if Taiwan is done very well with virus control, which you know, we generally think is, is a fact, uh, then they didn't, don't really need the WHO, which has been you know, criticized justifiably for the way it's handled the global pandemic. Uh, so why, why do we keep going through this exercise? I, I, 
Ministry of Foreign Affairs, if you're listening to this show, show some dignity and stop begging and just tell the WHO where to go. Ralph. I think the reason they do this is not because anybody in Taiwan and the government or elsewhere expects to get invited to the WHA or the WHO. It's because they're appealing to uh, the mass sentiment in in Taiwan. It's good for, for reputation, even if you don't make it, because you can stand up every year and say, Look, the Chinese are, are, are stopping us from getting in. Look, they've done it again. The, the, the bad bully is still out there. We're trying really hard. We've done so well with our, our virus control. We've done. We've tried to help the world. And, and China just won't let us. So cry, cry, sob, sob. Everybody support the government here. It's harmless. It doesn't. There's no cost to doing it. Um, it's something that the government's used to doing. The people are used to hearing about it. And I, th- I think a fair number of... of uh, Fairly hardcore DPP voters really like that issue, and they, they expect the government to to take it up uh, every year. Um, the DPP, as you know, is made up of various older factions, and they have to kind of rotate and please each one of them um, to make sure that, <clears throat> that they they have their long term political stability. Well, this is exactly why I call it the pity party. That Taiwan is seeking a pity party uh, around this every year. You know, one aspect is just making the effort and uh, you know, just saying like, "Oh, it's so awful, we're being bullied." Uh, so it's like they're seeking pity. And then uh, pre-pandemic, when there was in-person WHA meetings in Taiwan, would send a delegation of its officials, including the Minister of, of Health and Welfare, to have have an event on the sidelines. I mean, credit to. Uh, the Swiss authorities for letting a Taiwan delegation in and having a high-profile event. And all these government officials from other countries would come and pat Taiwan on the back and say, it's so bad that you're you're not allowed into the big event. And so that's another aspect of this pity party exercise. Again, I, I see the harm uh, to Taiwan's dignity by doing this. And moving away from illnesses and things like that to do with health and talking about politics. Now, the Legislative Constitutional Amendment Committee is slated to convene for the first time next week. Formation of the committee was first touted by President Tsai Ing-wen on May the 20th of last year during her second term inaugural address. At that time, Tsai described the committee as one that will serve as a platform for discussing constitutional reforms pertaining to government systems and people's rights. Now, the committee was finally established in an ad hoc basis on October the 6th of last year. Now, well and good, dealing with the Constitution, but there are people that are arguing that, well, maybe the committee and its capabilities aren't quite as good as the government is touting them, with some arguing that proposals could be tied together, and if a proposal was actually put to a referendum, which proposal has to be if they all agree, the wording of the question being put on that referendum could prove to be so convoluted that, well, the general public might simply not understand the question, Ross. Uh, You've laid out some of the the key issues, and one of them is the length of time that this process has taken. So you mentioned that uh, the committee was kind of convened last October. Uh, They're first having their serious meetings now. There's been some informal meetings internally at the political party headquarters. There's a committee and there's a legislators uh, committee, et cetera, et cetera. And it's clear that the Tsai administration didn't want to touch this in its first term. So once they safely had a second term, uh, now they're finally getting around to this. And they're going to try and make everybody happy, it seems, and find a few issues uh, that there might be a broad consensus on, uh, like voting age, uh, lowering it, something like that. Uh, but 
there will always be some people who are not happy in this process, uh, but this one there's some danger that there's going to be uh, a lot of people unhappy. And Ralph mentioned earlier uh, some of the, the older uh, constituencies within the DPP, and, and clearly some of those people want to see uh, a real rebuild of the Constitution, even if you don't change the country's name and get uh, touch those, those kinds of more sensitive issues. Uh, people want to see, there are a lot of people who want to see some serious rebuild, uh, keeping in mind that the Constitution was written for, for China. It wasn't written for uh, Taiwan. Uh, and I, I think where we're heading is not to touch uh, or not to do a serious rebuild uh, of a lot of the the, the 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 structure of government. And we're just going to wind up with, with a lot of time spent to do something or, or to get a proposal that ultimately is going to be a very small number of issues that are ones that, yeah, I mean, who, who would disagree on lowering the voting age? Uh, so uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, I think we could have done better with this process. I think that the process would work better if the, the legislators and the, the committee were to isolate the issue instead of calling it constitutional reform. You don't need to attack the whole Constitution if pieces and parts of it are, are okay. You can review it quietly and then pull out pieces that, uh, as Ross mentioned, perhaps lowering the voting age that are popular, get those done, nobody's complaining. Um, and then and then you go on to the headier stuff like uh, changing the, the structure of the government, which could be sensitive if it implies certain people in power are going to have more power which is always the threat. And I don't think they're ever going to touch the the, uh, the name of Taiwan or the ROC or the, or the legal territory. Those are red lines, and the DPP has been asked about that before, and they've shied away from making any kind of commitment. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're looking at domestic politics now, the political parties, and we'll begin with the DPP, which has been the focus of controversy in recent weeks over allegations that it's allowed members with affiliations to criminal gangs in the door. The controversy comes after Chao Jieyu, the son of the governor of the DPP Taipei Chapters Review Committee, Chao Yingguang, was detained over fraud and narcotics charges late last month. Local media reports have also claimed the younger Chao was also involved in assault and kidnapping cases related to organised crime. Now, the DPP revoked his membership on May the 1st, but since then, there have been questions about, well, how did you let these people in the door? And the DPP's replied, we're going to launch a new system in July that will allow for more background checks on members. So, Ross, letting mobsters in the door and more checks on members' backgrounds, basically. I think I need a, f- a few seconds to compose myself because I'm, I'm laughing so hard at, at the notion that this influence will be eliminated. I mean, both both of the major political parties in Taiwan suffer from this. They have uh, for you know ever since their creation. Uh, the the Kuomintang, when they were in China, suffered from this, and the DPP uh, has suffered from this as well. And if anyone doubts what I just said, they just have to look at at, at the constant pattern of political personalities from both parties attending 
social events such as funerals uh, when an important gangster dies. Uh, politicians routinely attend these events uh, at different levels of government, such as a, a county or a city councilor or a member of the legislature, or they send wreaths. And uh, this, this is just a, a terrible, terrible pattern, but it, it does show how deep these ties might go. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they could go through this exercise to say they're eliminating people. I don't know how you really do that and you, you know, to publicly accuse somebody who's uh, say has a some kind of titled role in a party organization such as the person who's been in the news in Taipei uh, you, know, you say like okay we've determined that Mr. So-and-so actually is a gangster so uh, you know, we're going to strip him of his party membership or his, his titled party positions I mean that, that would be rather, rather uh, explosive and on the other hand what is the likelihood that somebody is going to say, oh, yeah, you know what, uh, I actually am a gangster, and I'm going to resign from my party position in, in the local chapter or the party organization because, uh, you know, my brothers in the gangster organization are a lot more important to me than my work with the political party. And that's pretty unlikely either. So, uh, yeah, they might go through this exercise. Uh, I'd love to see them identify somebody, kick them out, and say they're doing so because that person actually is a gangster that sort of begs the question is the person going to be prosecuted since they've now been identified as a gangster by their political party. But, but ultimately, this, this won't go away. It's like saying that it's like the numerous times that the DPP has said we've eliminated uh, factions within the DPP. I mean, all they did was eliminate uh, factions from having, you know, a uh, official uh, presence uh, said, you know, you can't really have an office and call it the faction office. Uh, but the reality is that factions still exist and have a significant influence in the allotment of uh, positions and, and other uh, considerations in party decision making. So uh, I think years from now, we'll look back at this and, and kind of laugh because there'll be another incident where somebody is in a similar situation that they, they do have a role in the underworld and they do have a role in the political world. So, Ralph, weeding out the mob. Yeah, I don't think it'll be a matter of years before this piece of news goes away. I think it'll be a matter of days or weeks. I, I, um, the gangsters have been part of politics here and in a lot of other places for a long time. And it, it makes sense. The gangsters have money. They have uh, connections. They're very good at going out and meeting people, getting things done, protecting themselves. So there's a continuity there in terms of the job description between an experienced gangster and an experienced politician. Party will talk about getting rid of them because somebody's been complaining and they want to appear that they're clean. Uh, I think it's, it's hard because they depend so much on people who are uh, not really perhaps known gangsters, or <clears throat> they are, but um, they have a lot of legitimate business and you can't get rid of them. And I'm not sure that gangster itself is a, a legally recognized term. You can't convict somebody of being a gangster. You have to convict them of doing something in that gangster role, like, um, you know, some kind of crime against a person or a financial crime, then you can get rid of them. I think the party will have an easier time eliminating people who are convicted of a court of some kind of crime. And then they can go back and say, well, by the way, this was a notorious gangster and no wonder he committed these crimes. And they can make a big show out of kicking him or her out of the party. And Ralph, well, actually, Taiwan does have pretty broad laws um, that do go to just being associated or, or membership uh, in a criminal organization. So, uh, you know, whether or not the authorities would actually use that absent involvement in another crime for these kinds of persons, uh, maybe not. Uh, you know, the legal authority d does exist, but I, I think we could all agree the issue here ultimately is political will. 
Right. And Ralph, I mean, do you think the, do you think the voters just take this for granted? They don't. They, it doesn't affect the way they vote. I don't think voters really even know or care that much what the gangs are doing unless it influences their life somehow. So the, some of the gangsters have legitimate businesses. Most of them are really good about keeping a low profile. Um, it doesn't really have any influence on the average who goes, goes to work and goes shopping and goes out to play on the weekends. So uh, unless there were some influence, if, if the gangsters were taking outsized amounts of money from the government, perhaps contracting or procurement, that could cause a bit of a stir, perhaps locally where it's happening. But just the fact that gangsters are out and about and they're in politics, people more than take it for granted. They didn't even care. Ross? Well, I, I, I think uh, the existence of criminal organizations and, and normal business activities does have an influence on, on everyone's lives, and that's the case in, whether in the United States or, or here. Uh, you know, Ralph mentioned public procurement, for example. You know, this raises the cost of, of living for everyone when, when gangsters and criminal organizations are, are involved, uh, when they charge protection money on business establishments, uh, whether it's bricks-and-mortar establishments or stalls in, in night markets. Again, that, that raises the cost. I mean, this is a, it's a negative presence in society, um, even when we're not talking about activities such as uh, narcotics trafficking or, or prostitution or human trafficking. Uh, so it, it's a terrible influence, and it should be eliminated. But again, you know, ultimately, whether or not the political will, will is there, I, I'm not optimistic. And moving on to news from the KMT this week, and Party Secretary General Lee Jen Long formally announced that the KMT will be holding its leadership election on July the 24th. Now, the KMT is also holding its election for the party's National Congress delegates that same day. Now, according to the Party Secretary General, hopeful candidates will be able to pick up their registration forms for both of the elections on June the 3rd or 4th, and they must submit them by June the 7th or 8th. Now, the KMT Central Standing Committee has also set out its requirements regarding fees for the chairmanship election. Each individual seeking the party leadership will have to pay a registration fee of 200,000 NT when they pick up their registration form and then when they actually go to register their candidacy officially they'll have to pay 3 million NT processing fees and 10 million NT deposit. Now, there lies the crux of the situation because of course Ross these these fees have been sort of certain people have said hang on a minute we're meant to be a party of the people these fees are a bit exorbitant and maybe could we cut them down a bit and maybe not pay such big fees just to lead the party I'm a bit disappointed Gavin that you didn't you didn't tell us that the the candidates also have to affirm that they have no gangster ties uh, in light of our previous conversation uh, you know I'm okay with the fees uh you, you have to show some minimal levels of, of support behind you if you want to uh, pursue such an important position. Um, and one way you might do that would be collecting uh, uh, signatures on petitions. But another way to do that would be to show that you collect, uh, you have an ability to collect contributions, uh, or, or if you could self-fund because you're, you're wealthy. I, I don't think that's, that's bad in and of itself. Uh, we shouldn't exclude or, or discriminate against people joining politics simply because uh, they have personal financial capability to fund their own activities. Uh, so a, as a minimum, uh, you know, kind of barrier for entry, I, I think it's okay. And we should also keep in mind that with, with its assets frozen, the Guomindang does have uh, very, uh, very challenging financial circumstances. And one of the things the chairman needs to do 
is raise money, and they need to demonstrate an ability to do that. Uh, you know, the previous chairman, Wu Doni, sort of developed a reputation really for not addressing the Guomindang's uh, financial challenges in light of the asset freeze and kind of you know, put that aside after the party did so well in the 2018 local election. And they all kind of assumed, at least his team seemed to assume, that they were going to win the 2020 presidential and legislative election and then everything would be okay financially for the party. Uh, so the, if a potential party chairman can't demonstrate an ability to raise money, and, and frankly, in, in the scheme of things, this is not a large amount of money, um, then maybe they have no business being chairman. I think that the KMT is charging fees that are probably in line with parties of a scale at national levels in, in, in other parts of the world. They do need the money, as Ross says, this is one way to do it. It also, the, the scheme discriminates in favor of people who are really serious about running a campaign. They can show they either have money to start with or the ability to get it when they need it. Um, and it also might just tell the voters, look, you know, we still take ourselves seriously. We've been crushed in so many ways over the years, financially and politically, but here we are, we're still there, and we're we're going to be as professional and as as um, as high end about the whole process as we can. And before we go this week, the Civil Aeronautics Administration voiced its iry feelings after a video clip appeared on the video sharing social networking platform TikTok, purportedly showing a person flying in a jetpack over Taichung. Now, the alleged flying in man or woman incident took place roughly at the intersection of Jinhua Bay and Zhongde Roads in the city's Beitun district. Now, the video showed an object or person hovering at about the height of 15 storeys when you compare it to a building. And while the Civil Aeronautics Administration has said, this is illegal, don't do it, we're coming for you, other people have gone, ah, maybe it wasn't a flying person, maybe it was like a twisted balloon. So, Ralph, did you watch the video? You saw the video or the pictures? Um, no, I haven't had, gotten a chance to see the whole thing. I'm I would, you know, I'm glad it's not something lobbed over from China or a UFO. <laughs> I guess there's a couple of pieces of good news so far. But, I mean, what if someone offered you a flying a jetpack? They gave you a jetpack. Would you get in a jetpack in Taiwan or think twice about it? Because you might get some iry feelings from authorities. I might need to check my life insurance policy before I do that. <laughs> Ross. Otherwise, I would. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not afraid. You know, unlike Ralph, I, I, I don't have kids to worry about yet. So, yeah. Uh, is I'll take that risk. Uh, I'll put on a helmet and go up in the jetpack. Uh, but you know, the reaction from government agencies, we've seen this before with new technologies. And you know, one obvious example would be drones. And before that, it was uh, remote control uh, aircraft models. And, uh, and uh, you know, you know the, the conservatism of bureaucrats is, is uh, not astounding, but it's certainly disappointing. You know, these are exactly the kind of technologies where Taiwan has extraordinary capabilities, and we should be encouraging uh, startups and investors and, and, and uh, engineers and software and hardware designers to be getting into these kinds of industries so that Taiwan is a leader when these things become uh, commercialized and more acceptable. Look, we know the trend is that these kinds of things are going to be more common. You know, it's, 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 it's an obvious part of, of the gig economy and, and, and you know, delivery services that you know, we're also used to, to using nowadays, um, wh whether it's involving a human or it's going to be fully automated uh, as with a drone. Uh, so 
you know, the negative attitude by bureaucrats is just not not helpful at all. I think they should have a positive attitude towards these things. Ralph, negative attitudes, bad thing? I'm not sure what the law says, but most countries have a general aviation law, and that means that it, it applies to all flying objects at the civilian level that are not civilian aircraft, basically. And they should be telling us, matter-of-factly, that, you know, these objects can fly above a certain number of uh, meters in altitude or below a certain number so they don't conflict with other activities in the sky. And I'm not sure that Taiwan has the most advanced general aviation law in the region. <clears throat> China's been getting theirs up to speed because they have, uh, they're looking at air taxis and some other stuff over there. So Taiwan could do another update on that and include all these newer flight-related technologies make it really clear what's okay and what's not, where you can do it, and just get on with that. And that's all we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined today on the telephone by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And also on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.